Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tales by Firelight. This is week three of The Emerald Company. Falcon fell 40 feet out of the professor's tower and closed his eyes. He pulled the feather from his robes at the last second to cast Featherfall and landed softly. Three steps to the left, he disappeared into the shadows and was lost to the curious eyes above that had watched his fall. Hollick, Marion, and Corandric sat huddled together near the large stone hearth of the small frontier inn. Even with the fire raging and in winter gear, the companions shivered as bitter wind made its way between the gaps in the wall. A barmaid brought mugs of hot cider and mulled wine that she passed around while she got their meal orders and passed along the local gossip, which honestly wasn't much, other than rumors of the butcher's daughter being taken by a troll, but that gossip was weeks old now. They discussed their plans of finally returning south after spending the last year and a half since leaving Estricus in and around the villages at the far eastern edge of Cernowailika, the great mountain range that, along with the dwarves and Goliath, kept the great orc tribes at bay. They had taken on mercenary work, which they all rather disliked, but they were trying to avoid Nile and Alwyn's men. So they held their noses and did the work that paid to make them anonymous at the edge of the civilized world. Look, it's a two-week haul to Weston Cross. That's the farthest east Kalos outpost. If we don't go all the way to Squall's End, we can hunt elk the whole way and we can trade for protection in a caravan all the way to Akranis. I've got at least two contacts that I know would hire us. They might even be able to get us into the Dwarven Kingdom, said Corandric as he drank the mulled wine and cleaned the meat off of the lamb shank that he'd ordered. It's a good plan, Cor. I'm, I'm okay with it. Marion, what do you say? Hollick asked. The three spent the next several hours settling on a plan and then bedded down for the night. Around 2 a.m., Hollick had risen to relieve himself when he heard a commotion downstairs. He was halfway down when he heard Corandric following behind him. A single oil lamp is all that lit in the great room, and Hollick and Corandric came to the bottom of the stairs. At the same time, the tavern keeper emerged from his quarters. Something, or someone, was trying to beat the door down. Hollick's mind ran through the possibilities. Trolls, like had come for the butcher's daughter. A null band. He shuddered at that. They were nasty, loathsome creatures. He was beginning to think through the likelihood of either orcs or goblins when, to his frustration, the tavern keeper threw the bar from the door without thought, and in fell a large humanoid, covered in black fur and wearing blood-soaked winter gear. Corandric rushed to clear a table, and the three men hoisted the creature onto it. A spear shaft had been broken off between the seventh and eighth rib on his right side. He was coughing blood, and his lung was collapsed. Corandric had the most medical acumen among them, and with the aid of a potion of healing the tavern keeper had, they got the creature stable. Corandric stayed up 
to keep an eye on him and came to Holic just before sunrise. Holic, our, uh, our guy's awake. He's got a proposal. A job, actually. I think you might want to hear him out. <laughs> this ought to be interesting, Holic said. Lead the way. The tavern keeper had moved the visitor to a room on the ground floor while he rested. When they entered, he sat up as best he could, wincing at the motion. He spoke before the others got the chance. Thank you both for your help. I was very close to giving up hope that anyone would help. I'm sorry to be an inconvenience. My partner and I had... Hollick cut him off. Hold on, friend. We don't even know your name yet. My name's Hollick. This is Corandric. The tavern keeper is Nixa. Let's start with your name. You're right. You're right. My name is Nine Silver Bells, but you can call me Nines. Like I was saying, my partner, his name is Moonlight reflecting off the snow, but he goes by Moon Eyes. We had been beyond the mountains hunting a hobgoblin magician who was stealing children. We spent a month up there. We made it as far north as Pinebin Lake, tracking this magician's muscle that brings up, that brings the children. But on the northwest corner of the lake, the trail went totally cold. Literally disappeared. We circled the lake and struck out far to the east. Yesterday morning, we were coming along the road that leads up to Squall's Pass and the road that would take us on to Squall's End. Midway through the day, we were ambushed. Twelve goblins by my account, and at least one of them had magic. I'm not sure when I got stabbed, but one of the beasts tripped me, and I fell and rolled a good distance. When I got back up, they were already moving, with Moon Eyes running ahead of multiple spear points. I couldn't keep up with them, so I stumbled through the pass and down here to where you found me last night. I can't chase or track Moon Eyes. That was never my strong suit. I'm more of a thief. Tracking was always his specialty, he said, moving his hands and motioning towards the bag he'd been carrying when he arrived. Inside is a pouch of gold and a scroll. I, I think it's a spell. It's what we were being paid to track the magician. Both are yours if you'll help to track my friend. I'm going to need days to recover, and in the time that takes, my partner will be dead. Will you please help me? Will you please help my friend, he pleaded. The underside of Estricus was fairly easy to navigate in the low light. Falcon moved quickly and with purpose. The White District, named for its whitewashed towers and homes, was his destination. Towers make excellent shadow, and so he slid along through them to the east side of a 70-foot-tall white tower with a blue door that faced west toward the setting sun. Hidden on the back side of the tower, Falcon found purchase and began to scale it, not bothered by the height or by being seen. Sixty feet up and directly facing east, he found a window that he'd hoped for. It opened with ease, and he slipped inside the private study. He had picked up a spell from Bracken and pulled a small button from a pouch on his belt covered it in beeswax, and stuck the thing underneath the windowsill, 
ignored and totally disguised. He then placed a leather pouch on the desk and intentionally made a loud noise, enough to get someone's attention. In one move, he was out the window, scaling to the roof, still just in range of the wax-covered button that allowed him to listen in to the conversation that occurred in the room for the next hour. He didn't have to wait long for the desired result. For three months, Hollick, Marion, and Corandric searched for Moon Eyes to no avail. They had gone too far into the wilds before they realized that the gold in the pouch was little more than a clever illusion, one that thieves used frequently to get out of tight scrapes. The scroll was even more useless, as it turned to ash when the seal was broken. They gave up on the search completely and headed west toward a rocky gap in the landscape in the low foothills on the north side of a particularly vicious-looking mountain in this range of vicious-looking mountains. They would camp in that gap, a natural shelter against the freezing temperatures and a place they could hide a fire. As Hollick and Corandric were unpacking the horses, Marion shouted for both of them. The sun was setting far in the west, and she pointed out an oddity about 200 feet up on the rock face. There, she saw the flickering of lights, a fire. They passed another night, huddled together for warmth, and in the early gray sunrise, made their way up the mountain toward the fire that had been burning all night. As they got close, they stopped. There, built into the rock face, was a kind of tower. The only way they saw to reach it was the ropes that Hollock and Corandric climbed hand over hand to reach a stone landing. Four feet above the landing was a wooden door that appeared to swing down. The two climbed inside and made their way through cramped corridors, obviously built for smaller folk. It smelled foul and was littered with the carcasses of rats and birds. This was a goblin tower. As they neared the top, they heard the sound of scratching, like something being sharpened. Other than the entrance below, there was only one other door here. They waited outside until the noise stopped. Hollick kicked the door, and it shattered inward. Corandric followed him and emptied his crossbow bolts directly into the neck of a goblin that was not sure how to assess what had happened. To their immediate right, the voice came weak and uneven. I have not, but give all away. I'm in the wind, and I will rage. I'm in the light, and I will not die to darkness. What they saw horrified them. Ragged, rail-thin, his fur matting in places, falling out in others, an emaciated tabaxi sharpened three claws against the stone. It took them 13 days to convince him that they were not phantoms of some dream state. Repeatedly, they asked the tabaxi his name and got nothing. He finally came to his senses, but his name he still withheld. They all departed from the tower on the group's 27th day there. He continued to get better, and when the party returned to Nix's tavern, nearly six months had passed. 
The last night at the tavern, he spoke softly but with authority. I have been betrayed, and you were led on a wild goose chase on my account. But to what end, I do not know. I'm sorry. As Falcon perched in the shadow of the tower, he heard the door to the study open. Then he heard loud footsteps and the window open. The figure looked out and around, but saying nothing, he returned to his study. When the bag was found, he merely cursed in a low voice and returned to whatever activity he was doing before being summoned. Two days later, Corandric climbed the lighthouse to let Marion know that Corandric was dead. He had done his share of grieving on his own, but it was his responsibility to bear the weight of their shared grief. And so he descended from the lighthouse and sang his morning song until the early hours. He slept a while but left Red Hawk discreetly and returned to Estricus through a large tree trunk. Since you met me, you have called me Moon Eyes. That is the name my mother saw for me in the tea leaves she reads. But she gave the name to me loosely, foretelling that it would change. While in my prison, between the beating and the crying and the agony of starvation, I had one reprieve, one agent of hope, a falcon that would fly her circle in my full view. Now, my name is Falcon on the Mountaintop. I will be hope to someone in darkness. Falcon slipped inside the tower again and hid himself in the darkness. He didn't have to wait long and the man did not seem surprised to see Falcon once he revealed himself. And to what do I owe this displeasure? He asked Falcon. I see you. I see through the disguise. You cannot hide who you are. You cannot hide what you are. I see you, bag of ears. I see you, you damned coward. Bad enough to leave one's mate to goblin trash, but to find out you did a Pyrian's bidding and then have been licking his boots for the last 18 years is repulsive. Before Falcon could continue, two things happened simultaneously. The figure entered the room and spoke one word to Falcon. Two weeks later, Falcon rode to shore at Red Hawk with a song on his lips that he couldn't get out of his head. I have not, but give all away. I'm in the wind and I will rage. I'm in the light and will not die to darkness. Hollow is he, hollow is he. But we shall be filled. The sun will rise in his father's place, and hollow shall he be. Eyes on me, eyes on me, you've missed the ticking clock, the reality that spins in front of your blind eyes. Hollow eyes for the hollow sun, hollow eyes for the hollow sun, hollow eyes for the hollow sun. This is the end of part three. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks.